Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have an important one today. You know, for a change. Oh, I suppose you're saying, ow, every podcast you do is important. Well, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you, okay? Uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, Facebook and some uh, other mega corporations with maybe uh, too much market power, which use that power in a way that uh, goes from not good to really bad uh, to kind of dangerous all the way to really dangerous. My guests are Roger McNamee, a venture capitalist, who put Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg together, but now he is one of the fiercest uh, critics of Facebook for reasons he laid bare in his 2019 book, Zucked. And also with me, Zephyr Teachout. Zephyr teaches, see, uh, law at Fordham University, and her latest book is Break Em Up. Break Em Up is uh, in... in this case, your Amazon, uh, your Google, your Tyson Chicken, and again, your uh, your Facebook. Uh, during the 2016 election, we, we started seeing signs of how a, a platform like Facebook could actually be a threat to our democracy and how they may indeed have tipped a really close election uh, to Donald Trump uh, with the help of the Russians. Then... Uh, just this past uh, January 6th, um, how these platforms can contribute to Americans who, I guess, believe themselves to be patriots, uh, to them storming the U.S. Capitol in an unthinkable assault on, on just who we are as, as a country. And I have been concerned for years about how Facebook and Google and Amazon use Americans' personal information to solidify their market power and uh, in, impose unfair conditions on content creators and innovators that rely on their platforms to reach, uh, to reach their consumers. I, I was the founding member of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy and Law in 2010. I then raised concerns about Facebook's use of uh, facial recognition technology and pressed Google on its unauthorized collection of K-12 through uh, student data with their, their tablets, and seeing how their, just their accumulation 
of massive troves of information, uh, of data, is uh, really their whole business model and their main source of revenue, and how these uh, companies use their data to erect barriers uh, to entry for potential competitors. Roger McNamee and Zephyr Teachout have been on the front lines uh, in, in the fight to check the power of these monopolies and to transform them uh, to serve the best interests of uh, consumers and competitors, uh, best interests of our democracy and of the functioning of our economy. And we will be right with Roger and Zephyr in a couple minutes, but I have to say something about Mitch McConnell. It is really impossible at this point, of course, to be surprised by the breadth and uh, width and depth of, of his hypocrisy. But uh, saying my advice to corporate CEOs was to stay out of politics was so over the top. That was uh, last Tuesday. And I know that after that, he just said to himself, really, did I say those words? Those just come out of my mouth? <laughs> Hell, I got over $4 million in corporate donations just myself in, in just 2020. And, and those are just the ones that were reported. Uh, I better say something tomorrow. And so the next day he comes back and says, uh, corporations are certainly entitled to be in politics in the form of, of campaign contributions. <laughs> That's what he said. He just said that. <laughs> oh, they're entitled to be in politics. In the form of campaign contributions. Uh, now, as you know, uh, corporate campaign contributions can be made and are made in secret uh, because, in no small part, because Mitch McConnell literally, literally cast the deciding vote in 2010 to prevent corporate donations from being disclosed. So, a little background. So, in January 2010, in Citizens United v. FEC, the Supreme Court asserted that corporations are people and removed uh, reasonable campaign uh, contribution limits, allowing small groups of wealthy donors and special interests to use large sums of dark money to influence elections. Now, this wasn't just corporations, uh, but also uh, labor unions, uh, anybody, basically, as long as they were Americans and had a lot of money. Now, when Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the decision for the majority, he presumed the contributions would be disclosed. Let me quote from his decision. He wrote the decision. This is quoting him. With the advent of the Internet, prompt disclosure of expenditures can provide shareholders and citizens with the information needed to hold corporations and elected officials accountable for their positions. That, that, that was in his decision in Citizens United. But disclosure wasn't mandated in the decision, and Congress had to pass a disclosure law. It was called the Disclosure Act to force dark money donations to be disclosed, and we had a bill in the Senate, the Disclose Act. At the time, there were 59 Democrats in the Senate and 41 Republicans, so they needed every one of their 41 votes to filibuster the Disclose Act and to prevent disclosure. So literally, every one of the Republicans' votes was the deciding vote. Now, here's the other beautiful little 
detail that highlights the just the magnificence of Mitch McConnell's hypocrisy and, and that of pretty much every Republican in the Senate. Eight years before the vote on the Disclose Act on Citizens United, just eight years before, John McCain and Russ Feingold wrote McCain-Feingold. You may remember that. It was a bill that limited the amount that anybody could contribute to federal election campaigns. Uh, Now, Mitch and Warren Hatch and John Cornyn and the whole bunch of them were against limiting the dollar amounts that could be contributed. So they argued, this is what they argued. They argued, you don't need spending limits if you just had disclosure. And at the time, I went back and I looked at what they said during that debate, and there was a lot of, well, you need disclosure. Sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. Disclose, disclose. <laughs> and it was all about, oh, all you need is disclosure. So now, eight years later, the same Republicans were voting against disclosure. And when the roll call was called, we all knew what was going to happen. It was, gonna, it was shirts and skins, and they had 41 votes uh, to kill it. Now, I was mad, so I went to the well of the, of the Senate, uh, where people vote, uh, to heckle uh, Republicans as they voted. And uh, Mitch came up, and I said, what happened to uh, disclosure is the greatest disinfectant? And he just, he ignored me and then voted no. And then someone else would come up, corner or someone, I'd say, uh, what happened to disclose, disclose, disclose? i go, no. And another one, i go, what happened? <laughs> and i go, no. Now, here is my favorite, though. Some of them would make a comment, and they, they, they'd say to me, like, uh, well, it doesn't cover labor unions. And i go, yes, it does. Labor unions have to disclose, too. Oh? Oh. No. <laughs> like, you know, no, no matter what you... So I have one guy come up, one senator, and he says to me, um, well, it doesn't, uh, doesn't say labor unions have to disclose. I go, yes, it does. Oh, oh. Well, how about if the New York Times writes an editorial endorsing someone? It doesn't have to disclose. And I said, it's in the New York Times. And he said, oh, no. Now, this is the single stupidest thing that any United States senator said to me in the eight and a half years that I was there. And now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, it's Ron Johnson. No, he wasn't there yet. Well, who is it, Al? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, we've got an important one today. Zephyr Teachout and Roger McNamee, two of our nation's harshest critics of big tech. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. 
and that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Uh, hey, everybody. My guests today are Roger McNamee and Zephyr Teachout. And I guess my first question is, how did you ever get the name Roger McNamee? <laughs> so I got it from my parents, remarkably enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I told my daughter uh, that my guest was Zephyr Teachout, uh, she knew of, of you, Zephyr, and she said, with that name, it's a good thing she became a progressive activist. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so- <laughs> well, when I ran for office, um, uh, there was an early poll that showed that 8% of people had heard of me and 18% of people didn't like me. So apparently the name starts, it's like, what is that mess of a thing? Is it a company? Um, but It's, but it's once- a great name. You can't not remember Zephyr Teachout. So let me tell everybody who you guys are. Uh, Roger, you were one of the early investors in, in Facebook. And in fact, uh, you, uh, didn't you put Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg together? Is that I, I, I did indeed. And, you know, the great Harvard scholar uh, Shoshana Zuboff likes to describe Sheryl Sandberg as the typhoid Mary of the Internet, which makes me the Uber driver for the typhoid Mary of the internet, because I uh, helped to get Cheryl introduced to Google when she came out of Washington, and then I did introduce her to Mark Zuckerberg and brokered her going to Facebook. And so uh, in retrospect, uh, that didn't work out quite as well as I hoped it would. Zephyr is an attorney, associate professor of uh, law at uh, Fordham, and uh, author, uh, and her latest book is Break em Up, a, uh, a fair but uh, kind of scathing examination of the monopoly powers of companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and uh, Tyson and others. You guys know each other. You discuss this stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Zephyrus because I think that uh, she was one of the earliest people to call for a return of traditional government approaches to the economy and especially to managing capitalism, which and is antitrust. I, it, well, antitrust being one of the most important tools for doing that. And that voice that she brought to it was absolutely essential to uh, getting us started at a time when, frankly, it was accepted wisdom that markets should be left alone and should be allowed to allocate capital throughout the economy. And in retrospect, we see that that's not worked out well. By the way, uh, police are coming for Roger right now. Yeah, well, that's that happens to me every day. So if I if I cut out of here quickly, Al, you'll know why. 
Okay. Wow. That is, that's. I I think that's coming from me. Okay. Um, Well, it's good to know that uh, you're okay though, right? This isn't, it ain't coming for you. No, I'm, I'm, uh, so, so far I'm, I'm doing fine. So Zephyr, your, your book is about, it's called Break Em Up. And uh, from the title, I think we uh, understand that it's about breaking up these, uh, would, would you call them monopolies, uh, Facebook, Google, yeah. Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've sometimes, I mean, I, I chose the title to, to grab people and Zucked was taken, um, which is Roger's wonderful book, uh, which I strongly recommend. But but I do actually want to say that it is about breaking up in the terms of taking on Facebook and and breaking it apart from Instagram. It's also about breaking up platforms from companies that compete on them. You know, why do we allow Google to also own uh, <laughs> Google Flights? But but it's a, something much more fundamental, which is breaking up private power that is governing us, and sometimes. That's using antitrust, but it's part of a broader anti-monopoly tradition. So sometimes that also means saying, hey, this institution is so essential to our society. We're going to treat it like a common carrier. We're going to regulate it differently because it's at the heart of our economy, like railroads. So I I sometimes regret break them up because it's not just about antitrust. It's about taking on illegitimate private power and using a range of laws to um, to have a more free and a more equal and thriving democracy. And in the book, you examine the amazing power of these companies. And uh, Roger knows well Facebook, but also you, you go to Google, you go to Amazon, you go to like Tyson Chicken and uh, who, you know, exert monopoly power over the uh, farmers who grow their chickens, right? Yeah. I, you know, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about tech today, but if you l- look at the broader society, it's not just tech. Um, you know, we're, we're living in a world where there's you know, five corporations controlling food and a handful controlling defense contracting and a few controlling retail. It's, it's everywhere you look. And once you start seeing the world through a anti-monopoly lens, um, you see the the small and the large areas where we've allowed uh, hundreds of thousands of mergers. So um, more and more of our economy is really controlled in a top-down way by a handful of companies. Now, our, our court's approach to antitrust uh, had a really strong period from, from the Depression through uh, World War II, through the 50s, 60s, uh, but then it took a, a, a turn. Uh, and it really changed a- after that, right? I mean, there is uh, a, a really key period after the uh, you know, New Deal through the through the late '60s, where there was an approach towards the market. We b- basically brought a structural approach, saying we can't allow companies to become choke points where they strangle uh, potential competitors. Uh, we can't allow individual private companies to control vast swaths of the market. And so we're just going to have a default, what we call a structural approach. And we understood that the purpose of anti-monopoly, antitrust law was to have a dispersion of private power. And we're that, that's important, not just to allow small businesses and innovators to thrive, but also to allow you know relative power between workers and, and employers. 
the idea started in the 60s, but the real shift happened in the ni- late 1970s, and especially after Reagan came along, you saw this truly a revolution where Reagan and his and his California wrecking crew brought in the first of all a, a gutting of traditional enforcement uh, an attitude like business knows what it's doing we don't need to have rules of the road and second a view that the whole purpose of antitrust law was consumer welfare which basically came down to consumer prices even though they're hurting all the businesses that are advertising with them or dealing with them, whose um, products they're selling, who's advertising on their platform, if they're charging them more and bilking them, that's fine. That's fine if it's in the publishing industry, uh, newspapers, they're trying to put out ads, they're getting hurt. doesn't matter as long as the price is cheaper. That's pretty much what it is. Tell us about Facebook the way that that Facebook uh, exerts its power. In your book, you describe it, uh, you take care to do that. After the book came out, we've had the conclusion of the really extraordinary investigation into the tech sector by the House Antitrust Subcommittee. And so a lot of details have come out actually since the book, even though it came out last year, about exactly how Facebook has built its power by uh, spying on potential competitors and then either crushing them or buying them to make sure that it is the the only game in town. You certainly have the the examples of Instagram and the internal documents that we learned in that hearing where you see Zuckerberg and others being pretty explicit about their strategy of not wanting to have competitors in this space. And immediately after these these acquisitions are consummated, you see a real drop in the quality, um, that the privacy which Facebook had once competed on no longer becomes a priority. The, the toxicity of the site goes way up, that Facebook uses its newfound uh, real you know, monopoly perch to raise advertising prices for small business owners, lie to them about the quality of the advertising. There's been a series of, you know, keeping track of Facebook scandals is a full-time job. But, but this is the problem with, with monopoly power is that once you get rid of competitors, they're no longer accountable to anybody. Roger, step in here. Toxicity. Al, I think the key thing that Zephyr's saying here is that the U.S. made a hard pivot towards letting markets allocate resources throughout the economy under all circumstances. And it did that roughly 1980 when the Reagan administration began. So when Google and Facebook came along, we were basically 20 years into that. And there were very few rules and almost no enforcement of whatever rules were out there. So Facebook and Google come around with a very different approach. They're basically taking advantage of the absence of rules to claim ownership of personal data about every human being. And their notion was to create a data voodoo doll of every single person and to use that data first to make predictions of behavior, but ultimately to classify people into groups, into clusters of people of similar interests and similar behaviors, and then to steer their behavior towards economically desirable outcomes. And all of that seems harmless until you realize that these companies now operate at nation scale. They both have 
more active users by double than there are people in China. And so what happens is that their goals, which are about maximum scale and minimum friction, which is to say they focus on efficiency. And efficiency, Al, is something that every engineer learns because it really matters if you're making a motor or you're making a small software app. But when you have a culture that prioritizes efficiency over everything else and you grow to nation scale, if you operate in a country like the United States that is based on the values of democracy and the right to self-determination, there's going to be a problem because democracy and self-determination are inefficient by design, right? Democracy is about this long process of deliberation while we collectively determine our future. Self-determination is the same thing at the individual level. You decide what color shirt you're going to wear today, what food you're going to have. And in the visions of Google and Facebook, those are just horribly unproductive activities. And they want to drive us to things that are more efficient, more economically valuable. And the result of that is that they have imperiled democracy in a way that we haven't seen anywhere in the world since the Second World War. And that is terrifying, except they've also undermined other things like public health by amplifying extreme speech. Think of COVID denial, anti-vax conspiracy theories, QAnon, all those things that in 2020 threatened the U.S. election and actually led to the insurrection of the Capitol on January 6th. It's basically disinformation that's getting to people through Facebook. Basically, and let me see if I understand this and confirm either either confirm or, or clarify what I'm saying. Basically, they have these uh, algorithms, and the algorithms are a form of artificial intelligence. And those algorithms know you better than you, you know yourself because they they're keeping track of every click you make. Is that right? Is Am I right so, so far? Not sort of, but not quite. Think of it oh, this okay, way. Okay, good. They've, good, they've good. accumulated a, a data voodoo doll. So they, they know not just everything you do on their platforms, but they know every financial transaction you make. They know your location from your cell phone. They know every website you visited. They know every app that you use. Uh, if you get a medical prescription or a medical test, they get that information. So they have all they're the buying that information? That, that is correct. That yeah, is I, correct. Okay. okay. And in some cases, they're bartering for it. But at the end of the day, they have all of this information. And it's not like the algorithm is sitting there and it knows you. It's that the algorithm is looking at signals. And so if you have shown interest in uh, medicine, you know, they're going to show you something. If you show interest in cats, they'll show you that. If you've shown an interest in white supremacy, they will push you to that. Oh, Great. The thing is, they want to package you so you're really valuable. So it's not enough just to leave you alone. In their mind, you're most valuable when you are afraid or when you are outraged, because then you show your true self. And it's in moments like that that, that you, they get the data that you can't buy in the outside world. So, so they want they they see what what agitates people. Their, yes. their model is to keep you on as long as possible. Well, right? And, keep and you think on about Facebook. this: their goal could be totally different. Their goal could be to make you healthier, smarter, more economically successful, happier in your marriage. They could do all kinds of other things. But what they do instead 
is they want to drive you towards behaviors that create value for them, which is why it was just revealed today. For example, six months after Facebook promised that it was going to stop uh, promoting things for right-wing extremism, it was discovered that if you're an advertiser, you can still select right-wing extremism as a behavior, as an interest to target, which means that people who want to build Facebook pages <laughs> and websites around right-wing extremism can still do it. And they don't, you know, it never occurs to Facebook that they have any kind of responsibility as citizens of the United States, because in their mind, and I think this is true, in their mind, they're twice as big as China. So they should be treated like a sovereign nation. And they have their goals and their value system. And the fact that they conflict with our goals and our value system, they don't perceive that as their problem. And when you have conflicting value systems like this, it's really important not to view this as good guys and bad guys. What you need to do is to actually have a conversation about it because their way of doing efficiency, the direct approach, it goes much more quickly than the deliberation for democracy. And that's particularly true when platforms like Facebook control the conversation that the country has about its politics. And so they have the ability to exert massive influence on what people believe. That's how you wind up with 10,000 people at the Capitol on January 6th who are absolutely convinced that the election was wrongfully decided, notwithstanding dozens upon dozens of recounts and all kinds of checks that went into this thing. They just, they live in an alternate reality, not because they're stupid, not because they're bad people, but rather because there are people whose business is based on creating alternative realities because people who live in alternative realities are economically valuable. Let's talk about the anti-competitive nature, to go back to uh, Zephyr, of Let's focus for a second on Facebook. If you were asked, what is the anti-competitive nature? And part of it is just the pure power. But how would you yeah. describe well, it? Well, and I think it's actually important to talk about these two together. Because when we think about traditional anti-monopoly regulation, one thing you do is you want to break up private power that's gotten too powerful. And that's especially important in the communications sphere. Although for a long time, um, the U.S. policy encouraged and allowed for local monopolies with newspapers, you weren't allowed to own a newspaper and the radio station and the TV station. So uh -huh. there are multiple different sources of information and, and power in the, in the communication sphere for people in a local uh, economy, as well as national news, radio, newspaper. And then there are these public... Uh, systems, including sidewalks and including the post office that allow for people to come together and talk and debate and discuss. And, and so you have both a plurality of news sources and a few institutions like infrastructural institutions where we make sure that there's there's uh, room for everybody to come together that are highly uh, you know uh, regulated to be open by design. And so what specifically, done, yes, there you go. Okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry. so what Facebook has done <laughs> is take over all of these different spheres, um, decide what, uh, you know, even while uh, there are some news sources left, Facebook gets to decide what shows up on your news feed. You know, it doesn't organically show up. Facebook is deciding, hey, well, you are going to get angrier or more frightened 
if I share this piece of news than if I share your local news. So it's controlling the news from the top. At the same time, it's actually stealing money from these news organizations who have to use Facebook to reach an audience, but then Facebook is actually taking the ad dollars that used to flow to those local news organizations. And then on top of it, it's doing it in the way that Roger is describing. So it's highly centralized, it's toxic, it's fear maximizing, it's anger maximizing. We have never allowed for communications infrastructure to either be so centralized or to be governed by a business model that makes money if you don't sleep but spend time uh, scrolling through more and more extreme conspiracy theories. It's, a, it's actually, a, nobody would design a democracy this way. And so we've got to both take on the business model and the power. And I, I, I think sometimes people think either or, but both are really important. The, their business model is to keep you on Facebook because they sell yes. advertising. Okay. Yeah. I think if it's sometimes like if you had public libraries that used Facebook's business model, you'd walk in and there'd be censors everywhere. And you would see uh, conspiracy theories and uh, divisive content up front. They'd listen to everything. And every time you tried to leave, they would stage a fight. So you'd, ha- you'd stay in the public library. So, so now uh, Zuckerberg will say, well, we don't really have any control over this extreme speech there. We can't find it. That seems dishonest to me. That seems disingenuous to me. It seems to me that... and. And Roger, tell me if I'm wrong here, that their algorithms are basically saying, oh, this guy would really like to be agitated by uh, knowing that Democrats kill children and drink their blood. That that would keep him on longer. (laughs) To be clear, there's no human engaged in that activity. And the the algorithms are just going, look, I show them post A, what reaction do I get? If I show post C... D, E, F, what reaction do I get? And if one of them is spiky, they're going to get way, way more of that content. And it just happens that fear and outrage, which is, you know, the content types are hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories, that those three things just trigger it for most people because they trigger flight or fight. Okay. You say it's not a human being making that decision, but, you know, you hear Zuckerberg Basically, say, well, we can't. We don't. We can't yeah, but keep that's track nonsense. of this stuff. That's, that's totally, when I. That's what I'm getting to. Yeah, I want to. It's get total. To it's total nonsense. So the key thing to understand is that the algorithms and the business model are crafted by human beings to maximize their profits. And last year, when there was enormous pressure on Facebook to uh, reduce COVID disinformation, right? They were able to uh, have some impact on that. They have the ability to prevent. Uh, pornography on their site. They can get rid of anything they want to. But the most important thing here, Al, is that it's worse than just having disinformation or hate speech up on your site. It's that the algorithms, because they're so focused on maximizing engagement, they amplify that content. I would be way less troubled by Facebook if there was no use of algorithms to amplify anything. If everything was in there just according to, you know, sequence of time, so everything was in reverse order, or everything was organized by topic, that would be fine. It's this notion that you use algorithms to grab people's attention and hold it. And that's a problem. And then the other problem is the use of recommendation engines. Facebook did a study 
after Cambridge Analytica to see how much impact they had on political polarization. One of the things that came out of that study, which by the way, they buried for a couple of years until the Wall Street Journal leaked it. You mean they knew about it and didn't say anything? Oh, no, for sure, for two years. But let me tell you what it said. Let me write that down, otherwise I'll forget it, sure, shooting. So what what this study said was that 64% of the time that a Facebook user joins an extremist Facebook group, the thing that caused them to do it was a Facebook recommendation, which means two-thirds of the time that people are joining extremist groups on Facebook, it's because Facebook's radicalizing them. Now, put this in the context of QAnon. Facebook admitted last year that there were at least 3 million people who were either in Facebook groups associated with QAnon or were followers of Facebook pages associated with QAnon. 3 million. So if 64% of those people were radicalized by Facebook, that means roughly 2 million people were radicalized into QAnon by Facebook. That is... I mean, keep, remember, all the people who are at the insurrection, those people basically are QAnon followers, right? Stop the Steal was promoted and amplified by QAnon. So, you know, Facebook's complicity in the insurrection, Facebook's complicity in COVID disinformation, all of these things are embedded in this business model, which is the conscious choice of human beings. And to look at it as, you know, they're... I mean, we have to look at these things for what they really are, which is extremely dangerous business choices made with complete disregard for the public interest. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Roger McNamee and Zephyr Teachout. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. We're talking antitrust with Zephyr Teachout and Roger McNamee. Now, let me ask you this because you said, I said, well, they say they don't know that this disinformation when it's going out from them on Facebook. And you said, no. That's not true. Explain that. So so the thing to understand is that Facebook automates everything it possibly can. And it wants to pretend for public consumption that it has no control, that it's a neutral 
player with a big pipe that people are communicating on. But Zephyr made the core point earlier, which is that everything in your newsfeed is controlled by Facebook. Every recommendation you get is controlled by Facebook. And the algorithms that amplify things are controlled by Facebook. So the notion that they might not know some specific post was going out there, that's credible. But they have created an environment where it is an absolute certainty that harm will happen on Facebook. And I'll give you an example. They created a thing called the Facebook Oversight Board, which is an incredibly cynical ploy to create the illusion of Facebook responding to serious pressure. Yeah, this is something we want to get into, which is their sincere efforts to well, really... And th- this <laughs> one's complete nonsense because here's the way to think about it. There are billions of posts on Facebook every single day. If by some miracle, Facebook got rid of 99% of the harmful content, which by the way, they're nowhere near that. Uh, but if they were able to get 99% gone, there would still be tens of millions of harmful posts every day. The Facebook Oversight Board, which was Facebook's proposed solution to this problem, I believe has looked at a total of 12 individual posts and decisions in the two years that it's been up and running. 12 out of, and they're literally tens of millions of problematic posts every day. What Facebook does here is it protects a business model. It protects their value system against all comers. And the challenge we face, because today our country is not just divided, we have hamstrung our government to the point where it's really hard to pass legislation and even harder to enforce laws. And Facebook's taking advantage of that. And the challenge facing us is, can we as citizens defend democracy against internet platforms whose business decisions will inevitably leave us with some kind of corporate authoritarianism as an alternative to what we have now? I think this corporate authoritarianism idea is really important. And I think it's partly an answer to your question, Al, which is, I mean, they make incredible profit margins, right? So yes, they could just hire a lot more people, but Facebook really benefits, as Roger is saying, from a public debate where we focus for a minute on how many, uh, I mean, there's awful stuff on Facebook, but how many uh, Holocaust denial sites have been taken down. And then next week, uh, we focus on a different harmful group. And Facebook says, oh, we're trying to solve this problem. And then we're trying to solve this problem. But when the business model will continue to generate more and more of these problems, that kind of whack-a-mole approach is not one we should buy into because it's what Facebook wants. It wants us to be having you know, philosophical debates about this post or that post. But, but the corporate authoritarianism is also a real threat for another reason. Like take um, vaccine misinformation, which is, uh, you know, spread like wildfire on on Facebook um, b- because of the way the the algorithm recommends and prefers content in the way that Roger's talking about. Even in the sort of best version of this, a lot of the harmful stuff starts not necessarily obviously false, contested. Do we want Facebook deciding what is and is not good health? information. That's a really, uh, as a democratic matter, that's that's really troubling too. So instead, we should go after the business model, not say, Facebook, do a better job of being a corporate authoritarian. Here, here. That's exactly right. I mean, these guys, I mean, Al, they are 
they are incredibly successful at the old magician's trick of getting you to look at the left hand while they hide the rabbit with the right one. And we shouldn't fall for it. Remember, they are experts in persuasion. They have been on an apology tour since Mark Zuckerberg was in a dorm room at Harvard and stole all the photographs of the other people in the dorm and posted them on his, his you know, hot or not site. And, you know. And that was a great contribution to me. That was, they, he not. really moved humanity forward that day. And yeah, but, because you could tell, you know, you learned who, at, was it at Harvard? It was at uh, Harvard. Who thought who was hot. So, and that's and, a valuable <laughs> but but this notion of the never-ending apology tour where it's, you know, you do something awful, eventually you get caught, you apologize, you promise to do better, and then you literally go back to doing whatever you were doing before. I mean, Facebook in 2011 signed a consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission. In which, which they violated. They, well, which they promised that they would have prior uh, informed consent before sharing any private information of, of any of its users. And of course, in 2014, they shared the data of 87 million American Facebook users with Cambridge Analytica that built a 30 million user voter database they, they used to interfere in the 2016 election. And, you know, Facebook, you know, a, a guy named Sandy Parakilis, who was in charge of privacy for Facebook platform at the time of the consent decree, I mean, he Sandy quit in protest because they gave him no budget at all to comply with the consent decree. And he just goes, you know, this is going to lead to horrible outcomes. And he was completely right. Since they violated the consent decree, um, they should be fined for that. Who's in charge of saying, well, you violated the consent decree. I'd like $200 billion for the United States government, please. Or goodbye. What what happened there? Well, how did that get settled or is it? Hey, Zephyr, do you want to talk about, you know, the $5 billion settlement? Well, well, when the $5 billion uh, settlement in uh, July of 2019 is both the largest fine Im imposed by the FTC and so what? <laughs> no, it's not. So it's who would pick Mark Zuckerberg? I wouldn't pick anybody as a philosopher king. I'm sort of a, a fan of democracy, but you certainly wouldn't pick Mark Zuckerberg, who has been, you know, repeatedly like, "Oh, we sorry, we underreported the illegal content. I am so sorry, we exposed more emails. I'm so sorry that we, you know, very serious involvement um, where." Uh, you know, you have uh, really violent um, content, um, not just in the U.S., but out outside of the U.S., being involved in uh, pushing, uh, you know, genocidal attacks uh, around the world. The problem is that right now we aren't go to going at the power of Facebook. And that's why both breaking up and going at the business model are so important, because right now they can survive these fines. So I, I, I like your $200 billion instead of $5 billion idea. Well, why but... not? Why not? In other words, they go to court. Go ahead. Brother. Yeah, so I'll, <laughs> there are two pieces of this. The $5 billion settlement was actually, I think, larger than the FTC was thinking about, but they had some leverage. So, yeah. for example, Mark Zuckerberg was supposed to provide you know, sworn testimony as part of this. And there was evidence of foreknowledge that could have led to much more 
severe penalties. And Facebook, I think, is, my understanding is that they may have negotiated a somewhat higher settlement in order to protect Mark Zuckerberg from legal jeopardy. And in that thing, they effectively negotiated a safe harbor for all of the other horrible things that they had done in the time period that was covered by that settlement. That was a gift, which is why the stock price went up the day it was announced. Yeah. And and I I just don't understand. $5 billion, you can find that in Zuckerberg's couch. Yeah. But but Al, there's there's a much higher leverage case out there. The state of Texas is leading a case against Google where Facebook is an accomplice about price fixing. Now, under the Sherman Antitrust Act, they have two sections, but section one deals with any kind of behavior that undermines an entire market or industry. Price fixing being the canonical example of something that is just the worst kind of behavior. And this is a case where the state of Texas alleges price fixing in the advertising market between Google and Facebook. Now, this is a case where there are two options. They can pursue it as a civil case, which is what the FTC did relative to the consent decree. But in the case of price fixing, you can pursue that as a felony case. And you can pursue it as a felony case against the executives. Now, in October of 2020, so just six months ago, the Department of Justice sentenced the CEO of Bumblebee Tuna to more than three years in prison for price fixing in the canned tuna market. They at the same time had a separate case against financial executives who were trying to price fix part of the financial markets. They sentenced them to more than three years in prison. Now, we're in a situation where we do not have a lot of tools for constraining the behavior of internet platforms. But one tool we have, which is completely available, is to use antitrust law, the criminal portion of it, against Google and Facebook. Because when they are under criminal indictment, then their incentives will change. And then you can start to have thoughtful conversations. But really importantly, you can set an example here. Because the behavior that's gone on here, I mean, it's deeply problematic. And it's problematic in a way that really nothing that we've seen, I mean, certainly since the Rosenbergs, right? I mean, or maybe there've been a couple other spy cases in between, but, you know, in terms of threats to the nation itself, it's really hard to find examples that can stand up to what Facebook and YouTube and other internet platforms have done over the last few years. And, and what the Russians are you talking, because you first really became very vocal during the... Uh, 2016 election. That's right. Yeah, exactly. But keep in mind, in 2016, the, the thing that we were focused on was the use of, of internet platforms. For, in my case, I saw it going on at Brexit and then went to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg in October of 2016 to warn them because I was afraid something was going to go wrong in the US. And I didn't understand exactly it what tools they were using. I didn't know about Cambridge Analytica yet. But they were taking they were taking Russian ads paid for in rubles. They were, they were, but that wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest well, it problem wasn't the was, biggest problem, but it's the stupidest. I mean, how how do you, you know, I, we had a hearing on that, right, in the Senate, and I I asked Facebook's chief counsel if he would pledge not to take ads paid for in in rubles ever again, and and he wouldn't. And I, you know, I pressed him. I well, why not? And he said, well, you know, you can convert any currency to any other currency. And so I went, 
Well, why would anyone convert two rubles? Oh, but he never <laughs> committed to that, which was pretty absurd, I thought. And it seems to me that, that, Al, when you guys had that hearing, we really didn't know what we were up against. There's no excuse any longer. And now I think you have to look at this as we either want to protect our democracy we want to protect the public health of Americans. We want to protect our individual right to control our own lives, or we don't. And if we don't, then just let these guys do what they're doing. But we ought to have a real conversation because it's not like they're going to go away. I, I just I just want to triple underline something Roger is saying about the price fixing and the criminal law. I just want to dwell on that for a second because, I mean, for a long time, we got it that monopoly was theft. It's robbery. (laughs) It's like the reason that there is a criminal provision is because you can't have somebody standing in the narrowest part of a path saying, if you don't give me everything you're worth, you, you can't cross this path. That's highway robbery. And that's what monopolization is. And when you have Google and Facebook basically controlling price fixing in the uh, Why would they uh, digital advertising space, they're stealing. And we have to understand that there's, because the, there's a way in which what Zuckerberg wants us to believe along with Google and all these tech companies is this is a sort of a, a, a technical issue. This isn't hurting people. We may be messing up, but it's not hurting people. But it's actually a real driver of inequality here. Considering the monopolistic positions they hold in terms of advertising, why the hell would they price fix? I mean, <laughs> why would they cooperate? They're each powerful enough to really have a lot of control over what they're charging for advertising, don't they? Enough? It's a, it's a great question. I think it's it's like why do why do powerful armies march in the wrong direction for two weeks? And what happens? You know, what is power? And what does power do to people? And I I think that they are drunk with their own power, have been living in a kind of lawless sphere believing that they are above the law for some time. Because, because you're exactly right. They can still steal from us without... Um, without yeah, well, uh, they do. They do. Yes, I mean, what you describe in the book, and, and talk about Google too. Talk about your case against them in terms of we should apply antitrust law to them. Just give us a little rundown of why they shouldn't be price fixing. <laughs> why I know what we'll do. I, we'll, we'll break the law because... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we haven't done every, any, everything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Google is, I, I mean, in the book, I talk about how they're basically like the mob. You know, they've each sort of built up their own sphere. And like the mafia, they will fight with each other on the margins to, to, to build up their own uh, territory, but still protect each other and where it's helpful you know, work work with each other. I mean, Google is so embedded in the infrastructure, information infrastructure, and the power structures of our of our country. And we know that Google Search uses its power to prefer Google products. Boy, speaking yeah. of speaking of fines, you know, the EU keeps fining Google, and uh, Google pays the fines and. Instead of following the law. In another um, hearing, I Eric Schmidt, I had him in front of us, and they had uh, placed a Google product uh, higher up in, in their search results than it should have been, um, you know, given the the lower number of hits that it had gotten relative to something below it. He admitted that they shouldn't do that. So I said, can you commit to not doing it again? And he went, well, I can't commit. <laughs> 
that's amazing. To not, to yeah. not doing that. <laughs> like, wow. And I think people think of, they often think of these companies as singular companies. But like when you look at acquisitions, in 2011, Google was buying a company a week. And then we're talking YouTube, DoubleClick, Waze, as well as doing what Amazon does, which is study uh, study companies it likes using its uh, sort of perch as at a choke point and then copying it and stealing it. I, I think one of the things we want to keep an eye on, too, is it's not just the anti-competitive behavior. We want to also look at the fact that there are things about these companies and this industry that are different from the industrial era that led to the current antitrust laws. And so the way I think about this is that antitrust is really effective as a tool for buying time in particular to address the things that are uniquely different about this business model. And so I'd point to two things in particular. The first is these products are actually unsafe in the sense that using them leads to harm to society and to individuals. The reason for that is because these companies have no incentive to anticipate, much less mitigate harm before shipping a product. They're so focused on efficiency, so focused on speed and scale that they never consider what, the what possibility. Do you mean the what what product? So if you're making a you know if you're making a search engine, if you're making a social network, so any product they're creating, so whatever the next one, but even the old ones, they're just trying to get bigger faster. Okay. And so they never consider it. And this is important because if you think about the building trades, when there were fires in Chicago and other big cities, we passed building codes and everyone involved in building has to sign up to the building codes, which are essentially like a code of ethics. You're, you're both required to adhere to the rules, but also you are personally accountable if you fail to do so. And in some parts of it, like being an architect, you're required to have certification of your skills. Well, nothing like that exists in uh, computer science. There's no accreditation that says that you have a full education and know what you're doing here, that you're able to consider the things that you're creating in the context of the community in which you live. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. And we have passed this before. If you think about it, the uh, chemicals industry used to have a business model that was dependent on pouring waste products wherever it was convenient. You know, toxic fumes into the air, mercury into fresh water. Yeah, well, fortunately, that's not a problem anymore. Oh, wait, Tampa. What, the reason was because <laughs> we, we, we actually decided it was a, that that was a problem and we were going to end it. So we need to think about safety that same way. We need to essentially require that everybody sign the equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath in engineering. And then they need to be held responsible. Engineers need to be responsible. Their bosses need to be more responsible. And the corporations need to be most responsible. For the kind of behavior you've seen from Facebook and YouTube and others, there should probably be a death penalty. You know, that if you allow a foreign country to undermine an election, you know, that that should be it. And the second thing you need to look at is the right of self-determination, right? We need to think about privacy the same way we thought about child labor. It used to be that the garment industry claimed it could not survive unless it employed children in its factories. And that, of course, was complete nonsense. The same way the chemical industry said it couldn't survive if it couldn't pour mercury into fresh water. And we as a country said, your profits are not as important as the well-being of our citizens. And so we're going to force you to change. And there are certain kinds of data that just there should be no third party 
market for it all. No usage in business. And think about the following ones. Uh, health information. I mean, if you know somebody's prescriptions and their medical tests, which are things that trade freely in the data uh, markets, you know exactly what somebody's health is. And that that's too intimate. That should not be out there. Your location should not be available to anybody who wants it. Your browser history. These things are, are just too intimate and they should be completely off the table. And, and internet server, uh, service providers, they can get this data. Uh, this data is... And, sorry, anybody can get it. Okay. I mean, seriously, literally, and it's incredibly cheap, right? And so it, this is unbelievably harmful. And my view of this is that, no, that shouldn't be legitimate. And we should all have control of anything else. But it shouldn't be that we should be getting a div data dividend. I don't believe in that at all, because the problem here is that most of the harm from our data is not on us. It's on other people great story here. The example is that many marketers, including Facebook, including Google, including Target, work very hard to figure out if women are pregnant. Because once a woman becomes pregnant, that triggers a whole purchase stream. And so they spend a lot of time trying to anticipate it. And sometimes they know that a woman is pregnant before she knows. And the key thing is that for Google <laughs> okay, and Facebook- Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how's that exactly? So how basically, you, you know so that? they have hundreds of millions of people. They've tracked every single woman who announces that she's pregnant and they look at everything she did for the three or four months before that. And there are patterns that people do when they're trying to get pregnant and then when they do get pregnant, some of which are discernible from the data without the woman- actually being fully aware that she's pregnant yet. And so the you reason, could, could you ask Google, if you're trying to get pregnant, could you ask them when you're pregnant? I, I, you'd when have could to. You, could you let me know, <laughs> according to my behavior, when yeah. I've actually we've conceived? I've, but Al, let me explain why that's a problem. It's not a problem to see ads for Pampers, but it is a problem if they sell that information to anti-vaxxers. Because a woman who's pregnant is going to be vulnerable. And you do not want to be profiting from that. You know, I mean, one of the issues with Stop the Steal was that that was a grift. Hundreds of millions of dollars were raised on that. Well, guess who participated in that? Internet platforms. In fact, there is some material amount of revenue that these guys have that is from things that are illegal if they take place anywhere in the real world. You know, so whether it's the sale of antiquities or exotic animals or illegal drugs or, you know, Ponzi schemes or whatever. And, you know, that stuff is commonplace on these platforms. So we want to think about more than just antitrust. Let's talk about what we should be doing. Let's talk about what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I, uh, I think it's really important. So, so what does a healthy search engine look like? What does a healthy social media look like? <laughs> you know, what, what, uh, what, is, what is possible? And I think there's a few different options. I don't think there's just one, but I would say healthy search and social media would not rely on um, behavioral advertising because that at least changes the incentive to collect this, all this detailed information and maximize addiction. So that could either be, when you think about options, it could either be a, a contextual advertising model 
you know, if you're looking for information about new baby clothes, then you find information advertised about new baby clothes, or it could be a subscription model. You know, there's, there's different ways to imagine non-behavioral advertising, or you can imagine a system that what, just- What does behavioral advertising mean exactly? What does that mean? It's ad- advertising that says, okay, Al, we know you know, we have these, all of these data points on you. And so even though you are looking for baby clothes, we are going to serve you ad ad for a, a trip to, I don't know. <laughs> well, Our, we're going to serve you anti-vax. We're going to serve you anti-vax. Right. Exactly. Um, because we know that you're going to be vulnerable to that. Or And so it's, it's looking not at what you are looking for, but who you are, and all that we know about you and also all that we know about what is addictive maximizes or, fear. Or who, who will pay the most to get access right. to you? What, what is the model, the financial model for people who are uh, deliberately spreading disinformation? Well, a lot of it's political, Al. And so, you know, a lot of it isn't like they're looking to get a direct return on investment from whatever they're spreading there. They have some other activity. But, but aren't so, there people that uh, they go like, I'll spread disinformation and people will come to my website or something. Yeah, I no, mean, that, that, that's, that's been the YouTube model, right? Which is you, yeah, sh- yeah. you, you, you share disinformation, you sell ads against it, right? That was the Alex Jones model uh, and Ben Shapiro and a lot of other people. It feels like the Fox News model too. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of different models, but the other thing is think about the folks who originate a lot of that stuff. You know, if you think about the the disinformation about climate change that was circulated by the petrochemical industry, if you think about the, the disinformation about COVID, you know, that was largely from the president of the United States and his supporters right? Their return on investment there was going to be calculated not necessarily in dollars, but in power. But I I think it's an important point because there's not that much value. This isn't creating value. It's creating an enormous amount of wealth for Facebook and Google, but this isn't leading to the creation of small innovative businesses, people who are really trying to solve human problems. It is just taking the humans as we are and maximally manipulating us and making Zuckerberg wealthy and those who have disregard for the truth and each other, uh, giving them a bigger platform. So this is part of why I think it's important to imagine this other world. And I just want to add to that other world. Part of that is um, then also doing some for me, and I and again, I think there's different models. Is that I think we should do some breakups of social media, but I think there is a value. There's a reason we like to be on the same social media site as friends and family. So when we recognize that there's a value in some degree of of a network effect, and there's a massive value in the the network effect of say a search engine, that makes it all the more important that we don't allow them to just willy nilly do what they want, use whatever business model they want, uh, disregard the rest of us, be unregulated. The more that we allow concentration, and I think there's reasons to allow it in this sphere, not cross ownership, not Google owning uh, Google uh, Google flights, but a, a handful of companies, then, then we say, okay, and part of the bargain is then you're heavily regulated and uh, there's a lot of things you can't do. And that's, that is, even though these, these tech problems are new problems, that's a really old idea. It's like, okay, we want railroads. We decide we don't want to have 50 railroads. We want to have just a few. 
well, then you actually have to not discriminate against different people who want to use your services. Um, and so I think the two go hand in hand, allow concentrated power, but it has to be heavily, heavily regulated for our health and to prevent conflicts of interest. So Al, I would add to that, that if we're going to break these companies up, we want to look both vertically, which is to say separating Instagram and WhatsApp from Facebook and Messenger and all the pieces, but uh, or actually, I guess that's horizontally. And then you want to break them up also vertically. So you want to separate Facebook, the app, from the engine that powers it, from the advertising monetization, which means that in the case of Google, you'd probably be breaking Google up into hundreds of pieces. Right. Explain that. Explain that. Because... Uh, well, Definitely. because basically Google is vertically integrated in some crazy ways. So Google controls the inner workings, the plumbing, if you will, of the entire ecosystem of digital advertising. Well, that clearly cannot be attached to a company that is one of the primary sellers of digital advertising, right? That's, there's the conflict there is humongous. But when you look inside of what Google has in digital advertising, the pieces there shouldn't be together, right? They should all be broken off from each other. And so Google's digital advertising infrastructure piece should be dozens of different pieces all by itself. And then you sit there, maps should be separated from ways, which should be separated from the search engine, which, which should be separated from the applications, each of which should be separated from each other, right? And people say, oh, but that will be less convenient. And my response to that is, well, ask yourself which would be less convenient, making that change now and having that small adjustment or losing your right to make your own choices about your own life and losing your ability to have any influence over the choices made by your government. You know, because that's the real trade-off here. The failure that has taken place in Washington, the failure that has taken place among American citizens is to recognize that this business model, and these companies threaten our way of life. And that this is not something that will take care of itself. It's not going to go away. We either care enough about democracy, we care enough about our right to make our own choices to do something about this, or we are going to lose both of those things. Um, we, we have ads on, our, on this podcast, and I've really been trying to get Facebook to take ads. So I'm going to have to probably edit out some of this. Yeah. Well, you can just edit me right. out completely. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, uh, Al, I was at a, uh, at the new America foundation. Uh, now the new America foundation is a Google funded think tank. Eric Schmidt. Yeah. CEO uh, of uh, Google. Had a, had a, had a bit of a fit because the group that I was with, I was a fellow unpaid, but it was a eight person group. Uh, said that we supported what Europe was doing um, in terms of actually taking on some of Google's conflicts of interest. And actually the entire eight person team got kicked out of the New America Foundation because Eric, uh, this is a, a think tank in DC, uh, because Google didn't want uh, New America talking about this. And, and you joke about it, but it's really quite serious because Google's lobbying is not just cash to politicians. It's money to think tanks. It's spread really broadly, as is Facebook's, as is um, Amazon's. You know, big tech lobbying is this big mass, and it is 
embedded itself in the power structures and made a lot of people scared of speaking up. And it's very exciting because I think that fear is just leaving. And now that it's leaving, there's all these people with stories saying, hey, I, I, I've been squeezed out by Google. Here's how, it, here's how it affected me. But there is unfortunately a lot of fear about these tech giants. Yeah, I mean, remember, Al, we used to be, we used to know for certain that tech couldn't do any harm. Right. I mean, we go back to the Obama administration. There was an idealism about what these platforms could do in a pro-democratic way. And I mean, small d democracy that was palpable and governed their policies. In 2013, the Obama administration had a Federal Trade Commission case against Google that was essentially was about the heart of surveillance capitalism. And had they pursued it, the effect of that would have been to prevent most of the harm that has followed since then. But because of their relationship, their, you know, the confidence that they had that tech was good, the relationship that Google had developed inside the Obama administration, Eric Schmidt in particular, that case was not pursued. And it's a tragedy because looking back, we now understand that, wow, this business model really is dangerous. We had a shot. We let it go. Are we going to do that another time? Because the Biden administration has the opportunity to take that price fixing case in Texas and move it forward as a felony case against the officers and the corporations. The same thing that the Obama administration might have done in 2013. Now, I wonder if Merrick Garland, uh, his attention has been brought to this. Biden administration has its plate full, right? I mean, look at the situation. You've got a pandemic we've got to deal with. You have the economic consequences of the pandemic that the Biden administration dealt with in the American Recovery Act. But then you've got all of the dislocations, all of the flaws in the economy, the structural flaws that they're going to try to get at, at least in part with the infrastructure bill. There's a lot they have to get done. So the notion that that Congress is going to be able to legislate solutions over the next year or two strikes me as unlikely, which is why it is essential that the Department of Justice take this on. And I'm hoping that uh, Attorney General Garland will do this. I, I'm, I am, you know, cautiously hopeful. Um, I actually think there's been a lot of attention. There are a few names floated for AAG of antitrust, this position that can really change the game you know, having a really aggressive uh, person there. And people who are affiliated with big tech, enough people spoke up and they don't seem to be on the table anymore. And there's uh, there's somebody, Jonathan Cantor, who has who played a really critical role in that Texas lawsuit we were talking about, who is one of the two names we're talking about. If, if Biden makes the right pick here, it could be transformational. And I, I just want to, I, I can't end this without mentioning, though, that your speech in, what is it, Four years ago, 2017, November 2017. I remember it. I was there. It was an incredible speech. It was really prescient. <laughs> and uh, Al gave a really powerful speech talking about power and talking about these uh, tech giants and saying, we've we really got to look at taking them on. I think Biden may be there. You never know until it's, it's done, but there's a huge opportunity here. There is. And I, 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 I agree with Zephyr. I, I believe that President Biden recognizes the problem. And I think that the appointments to date are really heartening. And the 
remaining chairmanship of the Federal Trade Commission and the head of the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. Those are the last two core positions which can have a big impact this year. And so those positions matter a lot. But at the end of the day, what really matters is that they use the tools. Whoever gets appointed, as long as they use the tools. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just a believer that what matters is recognizing that we're up against a wall here and we don't have a lot of time and we can't afford to waste it. And this is a moment. And I'm watching President Biden's extraordinary engagement against COVID and the notion that we've been doing 4 million vaccines a day up from nothing when he took office. I mean, it's truly remarkable. And if that level of commitment applied to these problems, we'll solve them. And each and every person who's listening to this thing has a voice. Send an email or a letter to your member of Congress, to your senators, to everyone in politics that you deal with, and let them know this really matters. And I think candidly that uh, that people are getting on board that bandwagon. It makes me very excited and very hopeful. Roger, uh, thank you, and thank you for your advocacy on on this and uh, your passionate advocacy. Well, Al, back at you. I was also at that incredible speech in 2017, and your leadership on all of this was central. And candidly, we need your voice because you're authoritative, but also you're somebody that everybody can relate to. And I just really appreciate your giving Zephyr and me a chance to be part of this show. Okay, we'll keep that in this. Zephyr. <laughs> well, yes, that's here, here. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, Roger already said what I wanted to say in terms of goodbye, so I'll just do the short form. So, so well, th- hey, thank you so much for having me. It's, it. I mean, we're at a moment. We're at a real moment. And uh, uh, it's, you, I can't, no, nobody can promise you that we're actually going to take, finally, really take these companies on Yes, break them up, bring antitrust actions. Yes, do, uh, you know, bring federal laws down to bear, make sure the FTC is doing its job, but also give them more powers. But it's, we do have this moment and I I think it's pretty exciting. Well, uh, thank you. And thank you for your leadership on that. And thanks for for being on the podcast. And, uh, you know, my only regret is uh, lost a a lot of deep-pocketed sponsors potential sponsors <laughs> today. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? 
we recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.